Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Kerr, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Kerr. Well, I've got to say, I'm covered in goosebumps um, after that story about that little boy, yet another child killed by the partner of their parent. What is going on in this world? Honestly, if, I mean, oh, you know, I could do a whole show about it and I were, it's just truly heartbreaking, isn't it? So very, very sad. Um, keeping me company until seven o'clock tonight, uh, my panel, James Woodhausen, who's a visiting professor at London South Bank University, Lee Jones, who's a professor of political economy and international relations, and Scarlett Maguire, who's a former Labour advisor. And you know the drill on Jubes and Co by now, don't you? It's not just about us here and our thoughts. No, it is not. It is about you as well at home. What's on your mind? You can get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk, or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Don't forget, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to us on YouTube, you can download our app, you can listen to us on the radio. We're everywhere, so wherever you are, you're very welcome tonight. Now, let's get straight into it, shall we? You cannot uh, fail to have noticed by now that the Prime Minister, his wife, Carrie, and the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, have been fined for breaking lockdown laws. It's been confirmed that the three had received notification of the fines from the Met Police following an investigation into the illegal parties in Downing Street, of course, during the COVID lockdowns. It's got to be said a little while ago, both Boris and Carrie confirmed now that they'd paid their fines. Our political editor, Darren McCaffrey, joins us live from Downing Street. Good evening to you, Darren. What's the latest? Yeah, good evening, uh, Michelle. Well, in the last uh, couple of minutes, we've heard from the Prime Minister, uh, Boris Johnson, who's been speaking to journalists at Chequers, the country retreat he is at uh, this week. Uh, he has uh, made it clear that he has now paid that fixed penalty notice, as you say, along with his uh, wife, Carrie Simmons, or Carrie Johnson, I should say, and he apologises for the mistake I have made. He, he says uh, that, once again, he wants to offer a full apology. People expect better, and I have a responsibility to deliver deliver uh, that. So the Prime Minister, perhaps unsurprisingly, apologising and saying that he has paid that fine in full. Uh, and now kind of making the case, if you like, Michelle, that he gets how serious this all is. Uh, he gets the obligation around being kind of Prime Minister, if you like, and that he needs to deliver on the agenda that he has set out that he won the 2019 election on. Uh, but this is, of course, incredibly politically damaging uh, for the Prime Minister. There's little doubt about that. Uh, we haven't really got a historic precedent in modern times for a Prime Minister effectively breaking the law, a law that he himself uh, brought in. Uh, does that mean, though, that he's in the same political peril that he was just a matter of months ago when his leadership, his Prime Ministership, seemed like it was genuinely on the line with lots of Conservative MPs submitting letters to the 1922 Committee? I do not think... Uh, we are there. Many of those MPs, in fact, have come out this afternoon, like Sir Roger Gale, like Douglas Ross, like Andrew Bridgen, uh, saying now is not the time for the Prime Minister to go. So I don't think we're likely to see a leadership challenge anytime soon. 
However, all I would say is I don't think this is necessarily the end of the matter. Uh, this fine that the Prime Minister has faced alongside the Chancellor and the Prime Minister's wife is in regards to a birthday party, a surprise one, that was held inside the Cabinet Room back in June 2020, one that was actually reported in the Times newspaper at the time, and no one blinked an eyelid back then. I think what has changed, however, is that this seems like it was far from an isolated party, that in retrospect the police have clearly decided it was illegal and the Prime Minister probably should have known, even if he didn't intentionally break the law, that he should have known that it was an illegal gathering. But more than that is that the police investigations are continuing and there are allegations of more than a dozen parties in Downing Street and Whitehall and allegations that the Prime Minister also attended not all but some of them. And I think the concern for Boris Johnson that while, yes, things have moved on and while the party at the moment does not feel the need to get rid of him, that he may be fined again in the future. And, of course, he's got that full detailed report from Sue Gray. And that, again, will be a matter of clarity, a big moment for Conservative MPs when they'll have to reassess the support for Boris Johnson. Yeah, and Darren, just a couple of questions. Uh, there's been lots of people saying that Parliament should be recalled so that, you know, there can be potentially a vote of no confidence taking place. Do you think that's likely to happen? Uh, no, I just don't think it is, Michelle. Uh, it's a pretty big thing to recall Parliament. Parliament is in recess, of course, for the uh, Easter period. It is back uh, next week. Uh, only the government, only the Prime Minister can effectively recall Parliament in conjunction with the Speaker. I think Boris Johnson's unlikely uh, to do that, uh, given the situation he is in. Uh, the opposition parties, even though they want a vote of no confidence, I don't think are going to get it. If Boris Johnson was to lose his job, it would not be at the behest of them, but rather MPs within uh, the Conservative Party. Uh, but the Prime Minister has said he will appear in front of MPs when this is all concluded, when Sue Gray's report is issued. Uh, but as I say, that could be weeks, months away, even yet. Yeah, and lastly as well, I'm also hearing calls uh, for a recall petition uh, to be put in place. Is that, again, something that is likely to happen? Again, I think it's unlikely. I mean, there's always the possibility, isn't there, that uh, a certain percentage of an MP's constituents can uh, put forward a recall motion. I, I, I don't think uh, we're there with this. Uh, but, you know, this is damaging uh, for the Prime Minister. And I, I know people sometimes say they don't care and it was only a surprise birthday bash and that it's akin to essentially receiving a driving offence fine, a speeding fine or a parking uh, fine. I think it's different in the sense uh, that would be true if these weren't extraordinary laws that were brought in, imposed on everyone and mandated by the government. And the very fact that the police, no one else but the police have found that at least on one occasion the Prime Minister broke those rules when he himself set them means that there will be some reputational damage to the Prime Minister. There's an instant YouGov poll out tonight that suggests that 75% of people think that the Prime Minister has misled people on all of this. At the time, of course, he said that no rules had been broken, that the guidance had, would be, had been followed, and 57% think he should uh, resign. So clearly there are a lot of people pretty angry out there. But I think where we are right now, Politically, it is incredibly unlikely that the Prime Minister is going to resign and it's also incredibly unlikely that MPs will move against him. In many ways, as his supporters would point out, it feels like the political momentum has very much moved on. Darren McCaffrey, fascinating stuff. Thank you for that. Well, Keir Starmer has been asked about this a little bit earlier on. Let's see what he had to say. Has the Prime Minister misled the House? Yes. 
Uh, and that's why I think of all those people who obeyed the rules, did the right thing, and it's a real slap in the face for them. They made heart-wrenching decisions uh, and they feel incredible guilt for relatives they didn't see, funerals they didn't go to, weddings they didn't go to, even the birth of their own children. But the guilty men are the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. They've dishonoured all of that sacrifice. They've dishonoured their office. Never in our history has a Prime Minister been found to have broken the law. And then he lied to the public about it. Hmm, very dramatic there. Scarlett Maguire, I say very dramatic because, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for some of the things that Keir Starmer alluded to there. You know, so many people followed the rules. You didn't uh, you go to funerals. You weren't allowed to stay around after your child had been born, etc., etc. Rules that I would say actually uh, were inhumane. But made but, by Boris Johnson. Yeah. I mean, I mean let's, let, let's remember who made those rules. But be clear, though, what we're talking about here, the, the current event that he's been fined for, this is on the 19th of June, apparently 2020, on his birthday, up to 30 people gathered in the Cabinet Room at number 10 to present the Prime Minister with a birthday cake and sing happy birthday. Now, they're all at work. It's his birthday. And they just present a, car, a cake, sing happy birthday and crack on with their work. OK, so that's what one of his people said. He was ambushed by cake. Come on. This was a party. Parties were forbidden. I mean, what we oh, know was that... Well, it... a party. Has no one ever at work popped up with a cake and said happy birthday? That's not a no. party. Well, well, actually, um, just because it's at work doesn't mean it's not a party. What gatherings, ga social gatherings were forbidden, they were forbidden by the Prime Minister. I don't know how many people didn't have birthday parties. I certainly know of a lot of people who did not have birthday parties because they were against the law. But So all of that is really, is really terrible. That, that this is just one of at least a dozen parties that were held in Downing Street. So, you know, it was Partygate, Partygate. But actually, he went to the House of Commons and said to the House of Commons, no rules have been broken. So not only did he knowingly break the rules that he'd made, but he then went to the House of Commons and said no rules have been broken. And Keir right, so what do you want to happen now, then? Do you think he should resign? Yeah, I do think he should resign. Really? I, I, think, I think what is the point of having a prime minister who makes pretty inhuman humane rules, as you say, and then breaks the ones he finds so inconvenient. So in the middle of a war, pretty much. We're not at, we are not at war, right? I, said Ukraine. War. I didn't say we were. I said in the midst of a war, pretty much in Europe, you, in the midst of a cost of living crisis, you want... No, the, 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 a, 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 there is certainly a cost of living crisis. Actually, the last prime minister who was made to step down by the Conservatives was just at the beginning of the Kuwait war, and it was Mrs Thatcher. And her supporters said, this is crazy. You can't let her go at the beginning of war. And it was a war that we were going to be involved in. So actually, what is going on in Ukraine? There is complete unanimity within the cabinet and within parliament about what we should do. Of course, this is crazy that suddenly, because we've got a war, Boris Johnson can behave just the way he wants. 57% of the people in a snap poll think he should go. Well, I mean, I'm not on my own here. James, I think it is crazy. Uh, but what I think is crazy is the response and people calling for this guy, uh, the PM, the Chancellor, to leave right now with everything going on in the world? Well, for me, the issue isn't the law or parties. Um, and it's something, in fact, uh, um, Michelle, worse even than the government's antisocial hypocrisy and their mendacity. The real issue here is the utter disdain for the public 
which we've come to recognize in Rishi Sunak's desire to live in America once he's, Aww. you know, uh, moved on from this job. They have no Aww. commitment. No, you can groan, Michelle. I will but that's groan. a much more uh, that's a much more substantial mistake that he made than going to a party or taking a cake. What is a he, be he believes he believes that he can do a nice job in uh, number 11 now and then move on to some nice sinecure in the United Hang States. On, we have, a, fi we have a fixed term Parliaments Act in this country, so by definition, that job, all of the jobs in Parliaments, they have a potential end date to them. Yeah, but what he's not showing is any commitment to his constituency, the British people, or the long-term view for what needs to be done with economic policy in this country. He can fly off through his international departure lounge and show exactly that contempt for the plebs that we've come to know from Boris and the whole lockdown episode. That's the major charge that should be made against those people. Lee Jones, am I going to get any <laughs> sense from this side of the table? Do you mean, am I going to agree with yes, you? Yes, of course I mean that, yes. <laughs> you define as good. Sense. Yes, definitely. <laughs> this so, is Michelle. Yes. I think that the, the debate is being framed in an unhelpful way. So you're, on the one hand, you've got people screaming at Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak for breaking the rules. And then you've got Tory MPs lining up to say, oh, well, it wasn't that much of a, a rule breaking. The issue is the rules themselves. That's the problem. That, as Keir Starmer's just said, many people made horrendous sacrifices in the name of containing coronavirus. And what the, what the parties in number 10 revealed was that the very people that were designing and enforcing these rules didn't think that they needed to follow them, mm -hmm. which means that they didn't really think that they were necessary for everybody to follow. So the problem is this blanket approach to social restrictions, which was not necessary because COVID was a disease that affected mostly people with severe underlying health conditions, and elderly people. So people should be angry, but they should be angry that for two years we were placed under an authoritarian regime that controlled our movements and that was not necessary to contain the disease. I think I sympathise to some extent with what Scarlett's saying, that you cannot just say that, oh, because now there's a war in Europe, we've got to move on from all of this. This was two years in which people's lives were wrecked up and down this country. There are still massive questions to be asked about the mishandling of the pandemic. Oh, I agree with that. Agree with that, for sure. And this is only the tip of the iceberg. We've got to ask the right questions and not engage in you know, debates about, oh, is he a bad guy because he broke these rules? We need to look at the bigger issues yeah, here. Yeah. yeah, I've got to say, I did always find it quite peculiar that um, Keir Starmer was also pictured uh, with a beer at that point in time with colleagues. Does anyone remember that? So that's yes, all gone quiet. he was having supper and someone oh, drink supper. alcohol with supper. Oh. Let's get into the minutiae. Why not? Absolutely. And absolutely get into minutiae. I'm sure the police have investigated it and found out that you are allowed to have supper after Work. Well, I just think it's all a bit ridiculous. The, but, main, um, the main thing in this, Michelle, is it's all a ramp for us to uh, vote for the dismal policy-free probity of Sakir. He, yes, he would never do this, go further than a beer. But what does he believe in? Does he have a manifesto? Or is Partygate the only idea he has in town? That's the whole purpose of this media outcry. If you look at The Guardian just today, they've got a whole interactive timeline of who, who, how many people died on each day and how many people went to this party and that party. Oh, it's more statistics like in COVID, but even worse. That's not the issue. The issue is the contempt they have for people. And, uh, and people have rightly, very 
very angry about this, and they rightly detect what Lee says, which is that the COVID policy was not worth the paper it was printed on. Yeah, it was completely uh, over the top, and that they, as Lee says, they probably didn't believe in it themselves. They weren't even thinking about them. They certainly didn't believe in it. Look at Dominic Cummings. I mean, I, I don't believe in this conspiracy stuff, but I do. I mean, I absolutely agree with James and Lee. This is about one rule for us and another rule for them. And, and, and nothing has made it plainer than the behaviour of Downing Street. And, and if you listen to Dominic Cummings when he got COVID, what did he do? He went straight into Downing Street because he was too important not to go. I mean, it is, you see it over and over again. But what do we think of all this Rishi Sunak business then? Um, you know, James has just been saying that he thinks it's appalling. He's, he's essentially, I'm going to, you know, simplify it, kept his options open, if you like. But also there's been calls today, which I think are ludicrous, obviously, that he should be making his tax returns well, actually, public. Actually, when Boris became mayor of London, he made his tax returns public. In America, Trump is the first first president who didn't make his tax returns public. Would you make public. yours public, Scarlett? Yes. I mean, Would I don't you? have a problem with my tax right. returns. Right. But, uh, actually, Are you saying that, if, uh, that anybody who doesn't uh, declare their taxes to the public probably does have a problem? No, if you're not, no, no. What, no? I'm, what I'm saying is there is a real problem with Rishi Sunak and his tax, right? Nobody is even, there? Well, How do you know? But, well, because... It's a problem with his attitude. Because his wife... I've actually managed to save millions a year by declaring herself... But hang on, because I want to... But you've just said your exact statement was there is a problem with Rishi Sunak's tax. You then go on to say it because his wife... Well, his family. His wife, His yeah. family. I just think this is all getting out of control. No, really, Lee? Do we want to be a society where public servants have to... I mean, I laugh because I just think it's ludicrous. I, I honestly, sometimes I sit here and I think, what is even going on in the world that we now live on? What I, I just think so much of it is bizarre. But anyway, do we want to live in the, the kind of country where if you want to get into public office, you've got to declare your tax returns? Really? Well, there's all kinds of... When you enter Parliament, you have to enter your economic interests on the register of members' interests. And there's a reason for that, is that we think that when you enter public office, you should be serving your constituents. Correct. And not serving your own private interests. And so we want to know what those private interests are. By way of your personal tax return, because you've just said quite rightly there's checks and balances in place already, many of which are public. So why do we need this extra layer of, I would call it, uh, in, invasion, personal invasion? Actually, all I said was I'd be quite willing to have mine and that Boris Johnson, um, when he was mayor of London, had his. And I, I just think that where th th there's, been, there's been queries over Rishi Sunak and his family tax for some days, and each time we get near it. So, you know, first of all, his wife says, well, I'm a non-dom, as though you have to be a non-dom. Many, many people actually choose to pay tax rather than be a non-dom. Uh, and then, he, then, he, then we find out about the green card, and then, and then we find out just how much money they were saving. I think, again, we, the problem is this total personalisation of politics. The issue, surely, is that we have a tax code that allows something like 120, 130,000 people to benefit from non-domicile tax status and thereby evade paying national taxes. Now, that is the problem. That's the fundamental problem. They don't evade paying national taxes. They pay taxes is on this country, on income earned in this country. What they don't have to do is pay tax in this country on income and abroad. And by the way, because I need to go back to Darren McCaffrey at the moment, because apparently he's got a riveting update <laughs> on the latest for us. Uh, more so interesting will... than tax, Mr. Yeah, and nothing <laughs> is more interesting than tax, James. But um, 
I will pause that for now. But I just think I would not share my personal tax returns with a nation, would you? I mean, if you want to put um, good, decent people off entering politics, I mean, you're going the right way about it, if you ask me. But let me know your thoughts. Darren McCaffrey, apparently you have something fascinating to update us on when it comes to the whole Partygate Boris Johnson situation. Yeah, hello, uh, Michelle. I was talking, wasn't I, a little earlier about what the Prime Minister had to say during that interview with journalists in the last hour or so, uh, just getting a bit more detail about what he did have to say. Of course, we know that he has paid the fine now in full, uh, but also uh, that he has uh, apologised, essentially, uh, for that party, though he insists that it was a brief gathering in the Cabinet room at around 2pm that lasted for less than 10 minutes. And he says, rather interestingly, and this is his line of defence, of course, about accusations that he has misled Parliament because back in November and December last year he repeatedly said that all the guidance was followed, that no rules were broken and that also he was told that no rules were broken. Well, his defence in all of this, he says, in all frankness at that time, it did not occur to me that this might have been a breach. Uh, but concedes, and this is also the important point, uh, that the police have found otherwise, and I fully respect the outcome of their investigation. So it boils down to, I suppose, fundamentally that question that Theresa May was asking the Prime Minister uh, back at the end of January, that there were only two real answers to what had gone on with the parties in Downing Street. Either the Prime Minister uh, had imposed these rules but not quite understood them and thus broke them inadvertently, or that he had broken them deliberately and was misleading Parliament. His defence is clearly the former, though that doesn't get away from those questions that if the Prime Minister didn't understand the rules, how the hell were the rest of us meant to understand them, particularly at the time when people, of course, got fined up and down uh, the country. So the Prime Minister uh, saying that he takes full responsibility, that he apologises, but in the end he did it thinking that he was not breaching the rules but that behaviour inside Downing Street, given the scale of the parties, has and will continue to change. Darren McCaffrey, thank you very much. Got to be honest, I'm not sure how much longer I can talk about a cake for. Uh, Stuart <laughs> has messaged in and said, Jubes, give it up. Uh, basically, you're losing this argument. Uh, well, I think personally, I think I'm speaking pretty good sense, quite frankly. Um, uh, maybe I'm just suffering from uh, delusions of grandeur. There's a poll uh, running on our Twitter account right now saying, should Boris Johnson resign? Uh, yes, say 31% of you. No, say a sensible 68%. <laughs> Let me know your thoughts. Keep them coming. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at GBnews when we come back. I want to talk about the latest uh, on Ukraine. I want to talk about all the goings on in China. I'm telling you what, believe your eyes when you see some of this uh, and more. So I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Hello there. Welcome back uh, to Jubes & Co. with me, Michelle Jubry. I'm just looking at some of your emails coming in. You do make me chuckle, I have to say. Uh, lots of you think I'm talking absolute nonsense <laughs> and completely disagree with you. Uh, disagree with me, should I say. I think other people, probably like my mum, think that I'm talking great sense. But there's a real strong sense here. And, I, you know, I'll be honest. I think, actually, you are in kind of two uh, sides of the fence. You know, some people are saying in capital 
capitals, Jennifer puts in capitals. No, uh, Boris shouldn't resign. Uh, we should all move on. But lots of people are saying this is fundamentally wrong. I'll be reading out some of your emails in just a few minutes. But for now, let's move on. Uh, let's talk about Ukraine, shall we? Because uh, there's been you know, lots of press reporting uh, today that chemical weapons on Mariupol might have been used. Uh, the UN has called for investigation into the violence against Ukrainian men and women as well. Um, you know, Lee, I'm going to pick up with you on this because this talk about chemical weapons, I mentioned earlier, uh, the head, the Britain's uh, armed forces minister said, and I'm reading this as a direct quote, that all options are on the table if this is found to be true, the use of chemical weapons. Uh, Liz Truss has said that this would be a callous escalation. I have to say this um, suggestion uh, comes from the Azov Battalion, who are not the, the nicest of people. I'm trying to pick my words carefully. Neo-Nazis. Your thoughts? <laughs> Neo-Nazis, there you go. There you go. That'll do. What's your thoughts on all of this? I think it's a potentially really incendiary and inflammatory claim because what we've seen in recent weeks is Western capital sort of laying the ground for a potential intervention if Russia were to use chemical weapons. So there have been warnings since around the 10th of March that Russia is going to use chemical weapons. Um, and in fact, intelligence officers admitted to NBC, the American um, news channel, that they released this intelligence into the public, even though there was no evidence of any chemical weapons uh, being deployed anywhere near Ukraine. And then on the 25th uh, of March, um, President Biden spoke at the NATO summit and threatened to respond in kind. I don't think he quite meant that, but to respond in kind if chemical weapons were used. So what we've seen is the West drawing a red line to say if chemical weapons are used, you know, all... All options are on the table, as the Armed Forces Minister is now saying, which could, um, it could mean greater NATO intervention in the conflict and therefore an escalation of the conflict, maybe direct conflict with Russia. So they've drawn that red line. And then, as you say, the Azov Regiment is the one that has said chemical weapons have been used against us. And they are the ones that want to draw NATO into this war directly to try to tilt the balance against the Russians. So this is, I think, an extraordinarily dangerous moment in what is an extremely dangerous conflict. James? Well, I agree with that. Uh, I think the other side of it is, um, which I'm sure Lee and Scarlett would concur with, is that there does appear to be little that can stop uh, Putin, at least in, at the level of, or the Kremlin, at least at the level of intentions. You know, they, they are not just aggressive in tone, they are aggressive in action, and where it will end, it's difficult to say. As it happens, Michelle, Russia said that it had uh, destroyed all its chemical weapons um, under the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons regime in 2017. Its record in Syria, while controversial, does not exactly inspire confidence, uh, or at least uh, um, the Syrian regime's record conniving with the Russians on chemical weapons doesn't inspire confidence. We have to look at it in the round. The US has continually, continuously postponed the deadline when it will destroy all its chem chemical weapons. The Russians used to have 40,000 tons of them, horrible stuff. The Americans still have 715 tons. I'm not saying that's equivalent to what's going on. It's completely separate. But when we think of napalm in the Vietnam War, mm. uh, you know, there's a case to answer 
uh, on the West side, not just uh, on the Russian side. Right now, Russia is the main problem, and there's no doubt of that. At the same time, the West isn't helping any. When they say, you know, uh, all options are open, you know, Putin might call their bluff. It's deliberately vague. They've been vague from the start. And, you know, unless they show a bit more steel, um, you know, Putin will run rings around them because they don't have the determination yeah. that they need. And, I mean, you mentioned uh, Vietnam and Nepal, and I've been to Vietnam, I've been to the war museum that's there, and anyone that's been will find this is like an area, like a room, and it's the most bizarre thing because it's all about how the prisoners of war um, were treated which most people would say would, was probably pretty appalling. But yet when you're in this museum, there's pictures of them playing football, having a Christmas dinner and all this kind of stuff. So actually, when it comes to propaganda, uh, Scarlett, and messages being um, given to us and presented to us in a certain way, we have got to be so careful here because the ramifications of what could potentially happen next are immense. We have to make sure that we are absolutely crystal clear on what is going on. Oh, yeah. No, no. It's absolutely terrible. And, and, and likely I was appalled when the Americans admitted that they didn't check everything before saying it, but would put out things Pentagon. as propaganda. Um, if, for instance, that, that, that the Chinese might be selling weapons to mm. Russia actually as a shot across the bows when they had no idea that it was true. And what what has always been really dangerous is that Ukraine becomes becomes a, 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 the middle the, the, the pawn in the middle of Russia versus NATO. And, and actually, like you, having been to the War Museum in Vietnam and, and having travelled through Vietnam, there is no excuse for us ever using chemical weapons. I don't care what the Russians have done, and I think they have behaved appallingly, and they are certainly the aggressors. I don't think there is any excuse for the Americans using chemical weapons against them. And I think, like James, I think the Americans should have destroyed their chemical weapons. I think we should have no chemical weapons. I think it's absolutely dreadful. And of course, I mean, you know, this is what happened in Kosovo with the uh, Kosovo Liberation Army, is of course the Ukrainians want to bring NATO into it. That's, that is the only way that they're going to win. Mm. Um, but, but actually, NATO has to work out what they are really going to do. But I feel um, we have this conversation frequently and sometimes I feel like a stuck record, particularly on this topic, because I'm frequently saying, um, Lee, that I get concerned because this is such... Um, it's an awful, barbaric situation that we're seeing in Ukraine. We see all this imagery. You know, we're hearing stories now about how many women, you know, how women have been treated. It's so emotional. And any right-thinking person, when you're seeing these images... You know, they hurt you, they galvanise you to want to do something because you want to help. Mm. But then it's uh, the flip side of this is, you know, Putin is, you know, well, what is Putin? Putin is somebody who wants what he wants and seems very content and clear on taking action. And it just worries me, the emotional response that a lot of people seem to be exhibiting when it comes to how deeply the Britain, the UK, should get involved. What's your thoughts? I mean, I've never seen anything quite like it when it comes to a conflict. If you think back to the Iraq war, for example, it was hugely controversial. This country was split down the middle. And there were lots of people that were openly questioning the US and, and UK claims about weapons of mass destruction, quite rightly, as it turned out, that this was absolute false. Um, the, the, the intelligence had been fixed around the decision to go to war. 
And many people realised then that the government would, in fact, lie to them over questions of foreign relations. And some people, you know, when I was on that march as a young student, um, I met people that had never gone on a march before in their life. And they'd realised for the first time in their lives that their government might lie to them. And you might think, well, that's incredibly naive. But it did change the way that people thought about foreign policy in this country. And I think for the better in the sense that it, it, we shouldn't simply just accept in a trusting way absolutely everything authorities wish to say. Because in the context of war, there's always an information war that goes alongside the military campaign, which is designed to create a consensus and create public support for a particular uh, course of action. And with Ukraine, what we've seen is the total success of that operation. And obviously, what the Russians are doing is brutal and barbaric, and they give the West plenty of information and material to use. But we've also got to be incredibly careful, because as we say, with this particular example, it clarifies the issue that we should be thinking about. Who is making these reports? Can we trust what they're saying? What is their interest in, in making these kinds of well, claims? So we bizarre. need to very carefully judge these claims. But th these, you know, let's just call it what it is, we'd mention this anyway, a, a collection of neo-Nazis that are quite outwardly what they are. They're seemingly quite proud of it. Zelensky himself described them as, well, basically, they just are what they are, words to that effect. And I find it so peculiar that they're just kind of allowed to operate and be there. And, and in this instance, their claims would be reported before they've even been verified. Because to me, I would take this bunch of people and absolutely want to verify anything that came out of their mouths before I even thought about publishing it. James? Well, I think that's, uh, that's right. And Lee is entirely right. I, I think you could sum up the media information war as two, two things. Terrible pictures of people going through hell and utterly the emotional register, plus a glib demonization of Putin. I mean glib not because he is a, a good guy, but because we need analytical tools to rise above the individual incident, to rise above the Biden fudge and the, you know, all, all options are on the table. We really need to get underneath this dispute. And people like Fergal Keane uh, and Olga Guerin on the, uh, on the BBC and elsewhere insist on just trying to confront us with the need to cry or explode or stuff like that, and then some demonology. It won't do. The stakes are too high for that. People are dying, and we need serious, sober, and cool debate on it. We most certainly do. Do you think we're having that? Do you think we're getting that across the media Not generally? From the media. Yeah, I don't mean uh, GB News. I mean just generally. Are we getting cool, calm debate, or is it led, understandably, by the way, by emotion? Let me know your thoughts. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Scala, I know you want to come in, but just for time reasons, I'm going to take a quick break and move on to a different story when we come back. I want to talk to you about the goings-on in Shanghai. They're mind-blowing, I can tell you. Uh, that is for sure. We'll have that and more in just a couple of minutes. Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes & Co. with me, Michelle Jubery. Quick reminder, by the way, as to who um, it is keeping me company on my panel tonight till 7. James Woodhausen, the visiting professor at London South Bank University. 
Lee Jones, who's a professor of political economy and international relations, and Scarlett Maguire, who's a former Labour advisor. We're just discussing uh, Ukraine there, and I've just had an email come through. You didn't leave your name, by the way, so I'm not sure uh, who you are, but you said, Michelle, uh, the Azov Battalion are not neo-Nazis. Do not be so naive. How could you fall so easily? So easily is in uh, bold there for emphasis. How could you fall so easily for Russian propaganda and try to demonise people who are fighting for their lives? Well, what I would say back to you is that, you know, you could just spend a couple of minutes uh, looking into the Azov Battalion uh, just to understand who they are. Uh, for example, I think there was Newsnight's reports done on this group of people quite some time ago. Just a very short uh, Google, uh, I'm sure, will show you what they are and who they are. Um, anyway, let's move on, shall we? Almost 25 million people in Shanghai are in the second week of a strict lockdown after a surge in Omicron cases. This is the first time that Shanghai has imposed such um, strict restrictions. I would call them bonkers, ludicrous, <laughs> deluded restrictions, but it says strict there, so I'll read the word strict <laughs> out. Anyway, the, the measures include people being confined to their homes. You have to order in food and drink delivered by the government. Um, I'll pick up with you, James. Because what is going on here is it's like some kind of bizarre movie. They are taking babies and children away from their parents. They are having blocks of people and you can go down, you get a couple of nominated people that can put their... Uh, what they call it, hazmat suits on or whatever to pick up deliveries. They're uh, quarantining people. They're apparently killing the animals of people that have tested positive for COVID. And for what? Well, to try and get um, the, the place down to zero COVID, which in my mind is just not going to happen. Well, there's still plenty of advocates uh, of zero COVID in the uh, UK medical establishment. I hope this will give them uh, pause. You know, it really is lockdown Boris politics, but about five times worse. They're going through hell. They're not being bombed and missile struck like in Mariupol, but it's, you know, to not get food or drink for three weeks or four weeks, you know, to be confined to quarters. I talked to a mate in Shanghai just at the weekend, and I mean, the guy looks grey as a sheet. You know, it's really, really bad. Now, what we can learn from this is that under the surface, a lot of dissent is growing and not just about COVID in, in China. The Chinese Communist Party's infallibility is certainly coming under the magnifying glass. There's been some dissent already, you know, uh, senior professors and other people torn apart from their mothers and so on who are in their 90s, not, not allowed to see them die and all of this. So Shanghai, which has always been somewhat independent of Beijing and always the most cosmopolitan and internationally minded of the Chinese major cities, could well be not this year, not next year, but it's going to come where the CCP's rule is challenged, and that will be a great day for the world. Yeah, indeed. And I was hoping, actually, whilst we're having this conversation, just to share with you some kind of imagery and footage, etc., of what's going on there. Uh, so hopefully we'll be able to do that as we're speaking. But, Lee, your thoughts? Well, it, as you say, it's a, it's a lunatic policy. Uh, zero COVID attempts to eradicate the disease. Once it has escaped, a small group of people was totally impossible. So the whole policy of lockdowns and, and, and confining the disease, try, trying to eradicate it and contain it, was based on the success of doing that with SARS in 2003-04. And that was possible because you could very quickly identify who had it because there wasn't very much in the way of asymptomatic cases or transmission. And so you could identify those people, trace their contract, contacts, 
quarantined them and contained the disease. COVID, novel coronavirus that erupted in late 2019, is a very different kind of disease, much more transmissible, and it affects most people very mildly, or in many cases, no symptoms at all, and so it spreads much more easily. So once it had spread out of the city of Wuhan and internationally, I think basically the gig was up and you couldn't really contain it anymore. But the World Health Organization endorsed China's approach of lockdown, and so it spread <laughs> around the world as a, as, a, as a policy model to follow. But what we've, what we've learned since is that that was an irrational policy because you cannot contain it. Eventually, it will spread. So the moment that you start to lift restrictions, it spreads in the community because it's already circulating. The only way that you could absolutely restrict it and get it down to zero would be to engage in a lockdown so brutal that the cost would be completely off the scale. And that's what we're seeing Correct. today in Shanghai. So every other country in the world that has got a, had, had some success in limiting the community spread in the first place by sealing borders, so Australia, New Zealand and so on, they eventually realised they couldn't have zero COVID either because eventually it slips in and it spreads, especially when Omicron came along. China is now the only country, I think, in the world that is now clinging to this, this fantasy idea of zero COVID with enormous economic and social costs. Scott? It's completely mad, isn't it? I mean, we know from our experience that zero COVID is a non-starter. And now that New Zealand, which I have to say is two little islands, unlike China, which is massive, um, couldn't do it. Australia couldn't do it. So it, it, is, it is impossible. It is completely impossible for China to do it. What Shanghai is trying to do is, is absolutely terrifying. And you do wonder, James, if there's, if there's another reason for it. I mean, given that we know zero COVID doesn't work, we've learned a lot about control. The reason is clear. It is, about, control. It, is, it is about control. And I think a lot of this was about social control, but it is also about the fate of Xi Jinping. So mm -hmm. he has, to begin with, when the disease spread, there's quite a lot of covering up and non-compliance with the disease control mechanisms. And the centre came down very hard and said, we're going to eradicate this. And so the, the top level leaders in the country, their prestige and authority became tied to the policy goal of suppressing the disease. So it's That's now very thing. difficult for him to climb down the ladder, right? Mm. Because he will look bad. He's staked everything on this. And the costs that he's imposed on the country to do this, I mean, this, this lockdown in Shanghai could lower GDP by 4%. I mean, that shows you how, how, what a contribution Shanghai makes to the, to the country. So the costs have been immense. And when you, you, and we've seen it in this country the same, when you are so invested in a policy, when you have made immense sacrifices, it becomes it's so, the sunk cost fallacy, right? I've been doing this and I've paid enormous costs and the cost is so high, I can't admit that I was wrong. He's got the same on Taiwan uh, uh, as it happens, where you, you make a promise and then you've got to li uh, live up to it. China's other big shocking mistake, although maybe not so shocking, is that although they can be good innovators, they're not all plagiarists, they have failed to develop a vaccination programme. Yeah. And, uh, and that's an the thing that... An effective vaccination programme. An effective, yeah, yeah. Uh, one that works, I yeah. think, yeah. That's one thing we did right you know, a whole lot better than they ever did. And because they won't vaccinate, they're now forced to these draconian and, measures. And actually, what's, what's so interesting, so there were, two, there were two completely different schools of thought. There was zero COVID and there was herd immunity, neither of which worked. And actually, it does seem the only way to deal with COVID, if it gets any worse, and maybe it won't, is that actually it is vaccination. I mean, the, the, other, the, other, the other two extremes just don't work. 
herd immunity never stood a chance, like, like zero COVID. I mean, herd immunity is not a policy. Herd immunity is simply Something the like end that. state that you reach right. when enough people have either developed immunity through having the disease or through being vaccinated. <laughs> having had it twice. I mean, with a lot of people I know having twice. I mean, the problem is that herd immunity doesn't work because COVID changes. It's, it's not a policy, but it was a policy that was thought of and Sweden possibly really wanted it to I mean, work. Well, I think Sweden has come out of this a lot better than most of the European countries mm. by managing it in a more, with precision, public health. So adopting modest restrictions on social activity and, and trying to shelter as much as possible the people who are really at risk and avoiding the total crippling lockdowns that the UK endured. And I think, you know, the, the data is now coming out to show that they suffered, you know, less um, excess mortality as a result and obviously less economic damage and so on. But... The other issue around vaccination is they've got, they've done very poorly at vaccinating the elderly. Mm. So there's immense vaccine hesitancy among the old in China. That's why so many people are dying in Hong Kong. So they've rolled out a vaccine that is much less effective than the Western vaccines. And then they haven't succeeded in vaccinating the most at-risk groups. So there remains a very serious possibility that, you know, eventually this virus will circulate. Eventually, Everybody is going to get COVID at some point. Yeah. And the difficulty is if you're old and you haven't been vaccinated, that's a real danger to you. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, there you go. I mean, do spend some time having a look what's going on in China. If you get some spare time, I personally find it horrifying. Uh, anyway, I'm pleased to end the show by saying that I found some people that agreed with me. So excellent. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry says, Michelle, I totally agree with you about Partygate. Judith says, I wholeheartedly agree with you, Michelle, about Partygate. That's what I like. And just to end it, and I might as well end it with a little hat trick, Rita says, you are the only one speaking any sense tonight. <laughs> yes, Rita, yes, that's what I say. Anyway, um, have yourselves a very good evening. Jim, Scarlett Lee, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you for your company, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Cur, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.